Uh, so I got confused. Uh, I was preparing for Psalm 11 and then realized that we were meant to be back in Genesis and Brankston runs the same as us when we're doing major series so that we can fill in for one another. So we're doing Genesis 3, not the whole of it, don't worry. Genesis 3, uh, 1 to 7. Uh, so yeah, let's get back into Genesis. It'll be It'll be a good journey that we're on for all of this year. We'll break it up every now and then with a few psalms, and then we're going to do a series later on in the year on the book of Jude. Uh, it's only one chapter, but we'll probably do six or seven weeks on Jude, uh, which is really helpful in our time to consider uh, false teachers. But for now, we're in Genesis 3. And it's one of those passages that I've longed to preach on, but then I come to prepare it and I find it quite difficult to write a sermon on. So we'll see what God does. Uh, I, I, I think it's an incredible passage to have a good understanding uh, and a, fault, a bad understanding will lead to false doctrine, uh, which we'll see as we unpack Genesis as a whole. I'm going to start in chapter 2, verse 25. The last verse helps us have a bit of context as to what it was like and what it will be like. So let's read from... T- 225 to 37. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the field that the Lord had Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God's God said You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves to get to, together and made themselves loincloths. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we read of the fall of mankind, a fall that in many ways is tragic, yet a fall that is fortunate for us in that we come to grasp more of who you are as a gracious, patient, faithful Father, Saviour and King who pursues his people even in the midst of their rebellion. Lord, as we come to read Genesis 3, as we come to wrestle with the idea of evil and good, as we come to think of Satan being your creation and the power that he may have and the power that he doesn't have, as we think about complex doctrines that shape our world today and give us insight into the state of humanity, give us insight into the state of our own heart, that give us insight into the way Satan tries to lure us from your grasp. 
although he will always fail, for Christ is the offspring that conquers, the offspring that crushes his head. He is our saviour, the one who was tempted in every way that we have been and will be, yet he did not sin. Lord, as we look at the fall of mankind, would we see the grace that you have for us, the power of the cross, the power of the resurrection, the mighty hand of Christ, the righteousness of Christ, our own depravity and your holiness, that we may worship you with a whole heart and be faithful to you because you've given us your spirit all the days of our life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we are going to be in Genesis for some time. Uh, I think it is an important book to study because it is the book of beginnings. It's what the name means. And it is a gospel-centered book and a triune God-focused book. It is about God in his fullness, God in his complexities, and it's about God's good news coming to his people, his chosen people, as he pursues them even in the midst of their rebellion. It's important to have a good foundation in Genesis as it will shape our understanding of the whole Old Testament and then really we can't understand the New Testament without knowing the Old Testament. And a, 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 a immature or a lack of understanding of Genesis will lead to many false doctrines, false understandings of Scripture. So to give us a bit of a recap, we've gone through some Psalms and Christmas messages, so we might need a recap on chapters 1 and 2, which we did back in October and November. So chapters 1, or chapter 1 and chapter 2, we see very clearly God setting for us a picture, a picture of Him and who He is. It's all about God. We see in chapter 1, 35 times the name God mentioned, and we see 10 times God said We've looked at how important it is to see that God, what he says, see how important, sorry, what God says is, that it is all about what God has said and it's all about God. We've noticed that from the beginning or before all things, God was and God was complex. God was there before all things. He was self, self-existent, self-sufficient. He needed no one and he was complex in that he is three in one. All things were created by God through his word out of nothing, except when we get to man and the animals, which he creates from dust, but by his word. Eden was created as God's dwelling place on earth. It is a representation of the temple where God's, uh, God's presence dwell, and his image bearers were mandated to extend the borders of Eden that it would conquer the whole world and cover the lands. His image bearers being man and woman. They are his representatives. Their whole of life is to be representatives. They were given dominion over the whole of creation. And they were to use the dominion over creation to advance the dwelling place of God. This is still God's creation mandate. It's still his order for the world today. That his people will advance his dwelling place. It was the tabernacle. It became the temple. It is now his church in Christ Jesus. His church is the dwelling place of God. We see that in Ephesians 2 and right through the whole New Testament. And it is us, the church, the people of God, who will go forth, preach the gospel, be fruitful and multiply through declaring the gospel to the world, through having children and discipling those children in the faith 
that we will see the dwelling place of God advance through this world. Now we come to Genesis 3, and the rest of God's plan is still the same, to see his dwelling place go forth throughout the world in his local church, yet now with sin. Sin is in the world. Sin is in the world, and there is a problem of sin that runs through every person that God is the only antidote for. God is the only antidote for the problem of sin or the curse of sin that runs through all of humanity. Our aim in this part of Scripture is to understand the fall of mankind from the dwelling place of God. So we'll see this week the actual interaction between Eve and the serpent. In the next coming weeks, we'll see the curse that God puts on mankind, the punishment or the consequences, and we'll see the separating of man and God. We can no longer dwell with God because we are tainted by sin. So we want to look at the serpent and his words carefully. We want to look at how Eve responds carefully. And I want to compare it to Jesus and his temptation, particularly in Matthew 4, when Jesus was in the wilderness, and see the similarities between the lies that Satan uses or the distortion of Scripture that Satan uses. And, of course, we know that Christ stands firm. Christ, of course, is the better Adam. He is the Adam that fulfills the law, that is obedient to Christ, even to the point of death. He is righteous completely, and that is the picture we want to grasp all the way through Genesis. We're waiting for Jesus. We're longing for Jesus. All right, well, let's start in verse 25 of chapter 2. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. We must start here in order to grasp a weighty, in order to grasp the difference between verse 7 of chapter 3 and the end of God's perfect or good, very good creation. We see very clearly that at this point in verse 25, it was very good. God stated that at the end of chapter 1, he stated the creation was very good when it was complete. And then chapter 2 is about the creation of God's dwelling place, the Garden Eden, and giving man authority over the, the creation to extend it or work it and keep it were the words that he used. And this is the summary. Man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now, this has more to do, a lot more to do with not just physical nakedness, but their spiritual nakedness as well. What we understand from this statement is that they were laid bare completely, spiritually, physically, mentally, emotionally, before God and one another. I think one of the greatest images I've had of heaven put before me by Jonathan Edwards is the idea that we will not second-guess one another in heaven, that we will not questions one another's motives or, or wonder how people thought of us or what they think of us. I love that idea in heaven. Well, this is what they experienced in the garden. They were naked and unashamed, which meant they were laid bare before one another. They were laid bare before God in their emotional state, their spiritual state, their physical state. It's to say that in the Garden of Eden, in God's dwelling place, Worshipping and delighting in God was as natural as breathing. It was effortless. It, it just came with ease. Can we just try and grasp that for a moment? 
to be naked and unashamed, to not question anyone's motives, to not think, I wonder what they think of me. I wonder, how they, I wonder what they think of how I look today. I wonder if they're going to judge me by the way I think or the way I act. I wonder what God thinks of me. We would have none of those questions. It would be as natural as breathing to worship and delight in God, to be naked and unashamed. They were in unparalleled splendor. They had open communion with God. They had everything they needed at ease. They would work the ground and it would grow. It's an incredible picture in this summary that man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Of course, when we compare this to Christ, Christ experienced this for all of eternity past. Eternity past being him dwelling with the Father and the Spirit for all of the time, if there was time, it's such a complex uh, idea to think about, that he dwelt in this place with perfect relationship. They didn't, in, they didn't question one another's mo- motives or intentions. They knew that when one of them made the decision, they all made a decision. They were all equal, all loving, all perfect. And it is beyond our imagination. Yet Christ left that place and became man. And we read in the Gospels that he knew what was in people's hearts. And so often, and I love this about the Gospels, Jesus is there and he's doing a miracle or he's teaching and the Pharisees are thinking something. And you almost think that the Pharisees have said it, but it actually says that Jesus knew what was in their heart and he responds to what was in their heart. He sees or he hears or he knows because he is all-knowing. He is the creator of all things. He knows what's in their heart and he responds to what is in their heart. So Jesus experienced both being naked and unashamed in the triune perfection of God and the brokenness of humanity when he came to this earth and experienced the evil motivations, the judgments of man and the competitive nature of the relationships that men and women have in our day and age. And this is what we see through Genesis chapter 3. We see this comparison between the first Adam, who's really not present, and the second Adam, who is very much present in our world and very much aware and is very much faithful in every aspect of his life. So let's start working through these seven verses. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. We're introduced to a new character. He's called the serpent. And we could read some pretty crazy views about the serpent in the Garden of Eden. Now the most common view and what we would believe is that the serpent is Satan or the devil. And Revelation 12, 9, don't dive too deep into this because it's only got one thing to do with the passage. It says... And the great dragon was thrown down, the ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole whole world. The ancient serpent. So we see the Bible attributes Satan, the devil, to the ancient serpent, the one who was in the garden in the beginning. And he is the deceiver of the whole world. 
And I think it's important to remember that word deceiver. It's literally what his name means. Because he's not one that forces us to do anything. And we'll see that very clearly in the way he speaks to Eve and the way he speaks to Jesus in Matthew 4. But he deceives, he manipulates, he twists. So what we see from this passage is that he is crafty. Another word we could use is shrewd. In other words, the writer wants us to pay careful attention to what he is saying. Be careful in how you read his words because you can almost be fooled to think he is saying the right thing. He's clever in the way he attacks. He is deliberate and planned because he is crafty. Now, that's all this passage really tells us about the serpent, but we should understand a few more things to get a good grasp of the devil because it's dangerous in that we could either give him too much power or not enough power. The scriptures tell us that the devil, the serpent, Satan, whatever name you want to use for him, is under God's control. Our greatest passages for this are Job 1 and 2 or Luke twenty-two thirty-one. Job 1 and 2, we see Job, righteous man before God, prosperous man before God, and Satan comes to God and says, he's only obedient because you have blessed him. Let me torment him. And of course, God has to give him permission for him to torment him. Or in Luke twenty-two thirty-one, we see Jesus speaking to Peter, and he says, Peter, Satan has asked me to sift you like wheat. So what we see very clearly is that Satan has no sovereign control, that he is under the sovereign hand of God. And this is an important understanding in chapters 3 of Genesis because many people will teach that Satan had some sort of free will to go about and do things behind God's back. That is not what the Scriptures teach. The Scriptures are very clear that God is in control of all things and he was in control just as much as, in, in, sorry, he was in control in Genesis 3 just as much as he was in Genesis 1 and 2. God was not absent. He did not see this coming. He knew it would happen. It was part of his perfect, all-wise plan for creation that he would have a redeemed people for himself. As Isaiah says, he knew the end from the beginning. We must understand that Satan is very much under the control of God it may be hard to understand as to why God would allow sin to enter into the world it may leave us with many questions but what we do know that the scriptures teach is that God is sovereign but our decisions are still real God is sovereign but our decisions are still real that means that God controls all things yet when we make decisions to sin we are responsible for that. When Satan made the decision to deceive, he is responsible for that. Yet God is still in control. Of course, Genesis 50 summarizes it well for us and says, Joseph speaking to his brothers, what you meant for evil, I meant for good. Uh, God meant for good, sorry. Joseph says to his brothers who sold him into slavery and for 13 years he lives this life of going from, uh, from slavery to prison and back into slavery and finally to be the ruler pretty much of Egypt. And God's sovereign plan was that for 13 years Joseph would suffer in order that Joseph would save the whole of his brothers 
for the nation Israel at that time. They meant it for evil. Their intention was evil, but God uses it for good. The devil's intention was that the fall would take place and it would cause evil. Eve's intention was evil. Adam's intention was evil, but God determined Genesis 3 for good. And the good will be that his church will be redeemed, his people will be claimed, and we will worship him forever. There is only one being that can have absolute free moral determination, and that is God. One being. So with that, we could understand more of Satan. We could dive deeper into his uh, understanding, his character. But to understand this passage, I think, understanding that he's crafty, Understanding that he's in the control, under the control of God is enough for us here. So then the conversation starts with the woman. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Remember, he's crafty and the writer wants us to be careful of the way he words things here. The serpent is crafty down to the very point of planning to speak to Eve. It was deliberate. It was intentional. He was throwing out God's order and God's design. He was also deliberate in the name that he uses to call God. If we notice here, he says, did God actually say? He drops the Lord God. Now, if we remember back, Genesis 1 was God said, and it was always just God. That word is Elohim. And in Genesis 2, we see Lord God, that is Yahweh Elohim. This is a phrase that is a covenantal personal name of God. It was for Israel or his people, and Satan deliberately drops it. Even if we look at the first verse, Moses writing, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And instantly we turn to serpent speaking, and he uses God. He makes him general because the word Elohim could be used for the angels as well. He's making God common, natural, a created substance or being. So the serpent is crafty in the use of the name, dethroning God, making him a common being. He's also crafty in his intention to go against God's design of Genesis 1 and 2. God's design in Genesis 1 was that he formed man first and that man would lead and woman would be the helper of man. And man would hear from God and man would teach woman. So Adam taught Eve. When we look at the commands that God gave, and they're pretty simple up to this point, enjoy creation, have dominion, don't eat this tree. Very simple commands from God. He speaks to Adam and the intention is that Adam would teach his wife. Genesis 2.16 and the Lord commanded the man, saying, You shall surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in that day you eat of it, you shall surely die. So we see God coming to man. His intended design is that God will speak to man and man will lead his wife in the commandments of the law, uh, the Lord and God speaks to man and says, you can have every tree, but not the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And Adam would pass that on to Eve and teach her. So the serpent, in his craftiness, turns from man, doesn't speak to Adam, but rather goes to Eve and 
challenges God's word and unhinges God's design, putting forth a doubt, a doubt that maybe God's word is incorrect because his design isn't good. So this first little phrase, the fact that he said to woman is deliberately undermining God's design to put forth a doubt on God's word to try and say that maybe his, God, maybe his design isn't good, so therefore his word isn't correct. And he undoes God's design. So then we look at this phrasing of what he says to the woman that did God actually say? After starting to speak to the woman, he deliberately uses this general name of God and then he starts to put doubt into the woman and starts to question, first of all, God's goodness. Because if God is not good and if God is common, then why does he get to say what goes? And this is how the deceiver works. He deliberately puts the word actually. Did God actually say? A subtle danger of making Eve think that she has the right to put God's word under judgment. Right before, no one questioned God's word. Genesis 1, Genesis 2, no one questioned it. He was the sovereign. He was the creator of all things. He existed before all things. Therefore, his word was as it was. He said it, we obey. Now, the deceiver is adding this word, actually. Did God actually say, have you questioned God? Have you made a judgment on God. This slight wording makes Eve start to second guess God and come to a place where she will analyze God's word under her own wisdom. But then he misquotes God again by adding to God's word. And he adds the word any. You shall not eat of any tree in the garden. So the deceiver, the serpent, has questioned God's goodness and now makes him seem harsh and unloving. He changes the attributes of God from generous and gracious and loving to harsh and unloving and stingy because he's added a word to the scriptures that say any tree. But if we go back to 2.16, it's very clear that it said every. 2.16, you, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden. Do we notice that slight difference there? That God is a God of generosity, that God is a God who created a garden that was like a buffet. We saw at the end of chapter one that he gave them every green plant for food, every tree that had seed for fruit, food. And Satan, in his deliberate crafty attack, adds a word that makes Eve start to question the goodness of God. Did God say you cannot eat of any tree? Is God stingy? Is God harsh? So there's something new in Eve's mind. Eve before was obedient to Adam, and Adam was obedient to God. And there was no question as to whether God was good. They had looked around at the creation that God had made. They knew that it was very good. But now the deceiver has added doubt. And the woman responds in verse 2. You may, uh, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, 
You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. First thing we should notice is that Eve responds with the same title for God as the serpent used, God. She's lowered her Lord, her covenant Lord, the one who formed her, the one who fashioned her, her father, the personal interaction with God to something common, something created. Her intention is now changed. She's using the language of the deceiver and she's called him God. This is important because we often think the sin is just the eating of the apple, but we're seeing the heart start to change as she speaks and she's lowering the standard of God or her interaction with God to maybe I should question God. Maybe I should put God under my judgment. A new inclination that wasn't there before to question God has now been put into her mind. And Eve responds by twisting and adding to the word of God as well. She, one, leaves out something from the scriptures or leaves out something from the word of God. We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. She doesn't say every. She's lessened God's word. She's lessened God's character of generous, gracious, loving, provider. And she adds strictness to God, a harshness to God by saying, neither shall we touch it lest we die. That is not in Genesis 1 or 2. God never said, don't touch it or you'll die. Eve has added through the deception of Satan this idea that he is a strict, harsh Dictator, common God. Not a unique, holy, gracious, generous provider God. And what the deceiver has done, serpent has done, is he's put lies into evil to maybe question that if God isn't good, then his word can't be trusted. Leading all of mankind to the uncertain spot of what is good. What the serpent has done, what Satan has done to the world, starting with Eve and heading into Adam, is this great delusion that, there, that we should live in the grave, that there is nothing certain. What really is sin? The great question that if he just was straightforward, Eve would have realized, but he is stating to Eve, is it really sin? to disobey God? Is it really bad? Is it really evil to do what God has said not to do? If God is common, then who is he to give commands? So the great delusion of the serpent, starting with Eve, is that goodness and sin is a gray area. And there is no certainty And when we have uncertainty, uncertainty leads us to question God's character and his word. Well, Jesus faced the same temptation in Matthew 24, 1 to 17. And we're not going to read it all. I assume many of us would know it, but Jesus has been taken into the wilderness. He is not eating 40 days, 40 nights. He's without food. And the tempter, the deceiver, Satan, is there tempting him, questioning him. And he's using the same tactic. He is crafty in the way he words things. He says twice, verse 3 and verse 6, 
if you are the son of God, this is what God has said, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become bread. That's verse 3. Of course, Jesus responds with scripture and does not give in. Verse 6, Satan goes a little more and he adds words of God to it. And he says, if you are the son of God, throw yourself off because the scriptures say that he will save you. Of course, Jesus doesn't give in. But what we see here is Satan uses the same tactic. He's questioning God's word. He's questioning God's character. If you are the son of God, prove it. If God is actually good, show me. Of course, Jesus is the better Adam and responds with the word, the word that is true, the word that is certain. Whereas Eve has been put into the grey and no longer knows what good is and what sin is. She's uncertain of God's character and uncertain of his word. Verse 4, but the, verse four back in Genesis 3, but the serpent said to the woman, you will, surely not, you will surely not die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. If God's goodness is in question, his word must be reviewed. So now Satan has gone back to comment on the fact that he, she said that God would punish them with death if they ate of it or even touched it, as Eve said. So the serpent tweaks the word of God and adds to the word of God and says, you'll surely not die. And the real, the Hebrew phrasing would be, it's not certain that you will die. It's not certain. There's a grayness here. God's word can't be depended upon. God's word can't be certain is what the deceiver is putting there. If God's goodness is in question, therefore his ability to judge and to condemn should be questioned as well. If he is not good, then he should not be able to put forth punishment. He should not be able to judge by any standard. So the serpent has the woman's attention and now gives her an option. It's God's word or his word. Who are you going to believe? And with Satan, the deceiver knows that the fruit is in front of them. And it says that Eve... Uh, it says, sorry, I lost my train of thought. For God knows that, uh, verse 5, for God knows that if you eat of it, your eyes will be open. So he lures them in. He sweetens the deal here. He lures Eve in to say that if you eat of it, you will gain something. You will gain likeness to God. She's already made as much as she can be in the likeness of God. But he has now made God common. God is not out of reach. He is not your holy creator. He is not your covenant father. He is common and he's withholding from you. He's withheld this fruit. What else is he withholding from you? He's withholding likeness, more likeness to him. In other words, knowing or defining good and evil. Who defines good and evil is the question that runs throughout the rest of Genesis. God defines good and evil. Up until Genesis 3, 
But the serpent has put God under a microscope and said, we should question this God. Is he really the all-sovereign? Is he really in control? Is he really good? And if he is not good, then his word should be questioned and he does not get to define good and evil. Really, to me, it's a no-brainer. If God created the world, if he's before all things, if he upholds the world, world, then it is clear that he defines good and evil. But the temptation that Satan has put before Eve is to grasp hold of something that is not hers to have, to define good and evil by herself. That she may be able to determine what is good in her own eyes and what is evil in her own eyes. And we see Genesis play this out We see the Old Testament play this out and we see our world playing this out today. What is good? What is good is the question that many people ask. I will define what's good for me. We will define in ourselves what is good for us and good for us is to make us happy is what many, I guess, would say today. Matthew 4 The invitation to have power is offered to Jesus as well. Verse 8 and 9, we see again the devil took him, Jesus, to a very high place, a high mountain, and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to them, all these I'll give you if you'll fall down and worship me. It's a very similar temptation as to Eve. Eve has all that she could have. She's in the closest possible relationship to the Lord that she could ever have. Jesus will have the nations. He has the nations. They are his. And the the deceiver tries to manipulate God's word, question his goodness, therefore putting God under judgment and saying, is it true? Is he really going to? I can give it to you now. I can give you knowledge of good and evil now. I can give you power over your own moral compass now. Or to Jesus, I'll give you the kingdoms now if you worship me. Of course, Jesus sees through the deception and he responds with the word. Eve gives in to the deception. And in verse 6 of Genesis 3, when the woman saw the tree, she looked at it, saw it was good for food. It was a delight to the eyes that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. The woman goes to now process, and we've got a glimpse into her processing. The serpent wanted her to weigh God in tension, to hold him in tension. Is God good? If God is not good, then his word should not be trusted. And so she weighs it. But she weighs it as she looks at the tree and she sees the desire for power, the desire for self-determining or self-defining of good and evil and looks at it and it says she sees that it's a delight to the eyes. She engages with her senses, the very senses that God gave her to enjoy him. She enjoys the lustful thought of sin. And as she weighs it up, is God good? Is God withholding from me? She's learned something new to question God, right? 
Before she was naked and not ashamed and listening to God was as natural as breathing. But now, but now there's questions. There's questions to be answered and desires that she wants answered and the food seems to be able to give her the answers. And she takes of it. And the woman turns to her husband who was with her. This is, in, this is significant. He was with her. What was he doing? Did he think it was rude to interrupt a talking snake? But he's there, present, with her, and not saying anything. This is the man who heard the law of God from God's mouth and was to teach his wife the same. Was to teach her, nurture her, protect her. His role was to keep and protect the garden, and he's managed to fail by letting in a talking serpent and allowing his wife to be deceived to the point where it's too late. Her eyes have lusted. Her delight has gone from God to herself, wanting knowledge of good and evil, wanting to define it for herself. She's questioning God's goodness. She's questioning God's word, and she's brought her husband along with her. But what's the difference between Eve's sin and Adam's sin? Paul says that Eve was deceived and ate of the fruit. Adam took it willingly. Adam took the fruit willingly. Eve was deceived by the cunningness of the serpent, but Adam just took of it straight from his wife's hands. We'll see next week that when God comes to speak to them, he doesn't speak to woman, he speaks to man. He speaks to man because his design was that man would lead his wife. And the design of God has been turned upside down in that the woman listens to the very creation she was to have dominion over. Man listens to the woman he was to lead and no one listens to God. So the phrases of Genesis 1, God said, God said, God said, have been thrown out the door because maybe God isn't good and therefore his word can't be trusted. But the hope is that Jesus is the better Adam. And he, in the midst of temptation, draws near to what God has said and repeatedly responds to the serpent the crafty serpent, Satan the deceiver, with the certain, not uncertain, the certain word of God. And he responds every time with a scripture. And he responds with a word that is trustworthy because he knows the absolute certainty of the goodness of God. Even when Satan uses a friend to tempt Jesus, and in Luke 16, we see Peter come to Jesus. Jesus has predicted his death and resurrection. And Peter rebukes him in front of everyone. And what does Jesus say to him? Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Uh, in the garden, we see the serpent use Eve to get to Adam. And in the Gospels, we see... Jesus' dear, dear friend Peter tempted him into not going to the cross. Satan, Satan's lure comes in all sorts of forms. There may be close friends, it may be our spouses, 
But his attack is nearly always the same. Question God. He wants us in the gray. He wants us to consider, is God really good? And if he's not good, how can he define what is right and wrong? Go forth to the world, talk to people, preach the gospel to people, and you'll find that nearly always the thing they can't trust is God's word. They're uncertain, they're in the grey, there is no knowing, it's too hard to comprehend, they don't trust the goodness of God, they're in the, de- they're in the sin and the deception of their parents, Adam and Eve. To think that God is not good, therefore his word cannot be trusted, and we have no certainty of what is right and wrong. So they define it by themselves. It's the same pattern. And we will see it unpacked throughout whole of Genesis as Cain decides what is good and evil in his eyes by murdering his brother. As Lamech decides what is good and evil in his eyes by taking many wives and treating them like slaves. As Abraham decides that it's good in his eyes to lie to kings about his wife. And so on and so forth, we see through the whole of human history, the deception of Satan is there, that there is nothing certain. God might not be good, therefore his word is not to be trusted. And we live in the uncertainty of any sense of our existence and our future. But Christ stands upon the word. And Christ, as the better Adam, comes in obedience to the Lord, obedience to his Father, faces temptation in the same way that Adam and Eve did, in every way that we have, Hebrews says, and he stands upon the certainty of God's character, his goodness, and the faithfulness that his plans will come to fruition. And he stands upon the word, and he defends it with the word. And it is through Christ that the dwelling place of God will be extended through his church, his true people, his redeemed people. So in verse 7, everything's undone. The eyes of both were open. They knew that they were naked. That is naked in every way, spiritually, emotionally. They were, they were, they were hiding things now. They sewed fig leaves and together made themselves loincloths. The rest of Genesis is the outworking of Genesis 7. What does it look like for a humanity to not trust one another and to not trust God? And of course, what comes into that is the curses that God puts on the earth, on man, on woman, on the serpent. They also play a part. But there is an uncertainty There is a grayness. Can we trust the goodness of God? Can we trust one another? Well, the answer to that is no, we can't trust one another. But we can trust the goodness of God. We've seen it in our Savior Christ, who is the one who crushes the serpent's head, who is the one who is faithful to the end. He is faithful even in the midst of, of questions of all people around him. Questions from the Gentiles, questions from the Pharisees, questions from his close friends. Questioning his goodness, questioning who he is, is he really the word of God? And as we look through the rest of Genesis, we'll unpack what it looks like 
to have a faithful good God who's proved his goodness and word to be true as he pursues a wayward people for himself despite their unqualified judgments upon his character and word. His faithfulness to a wayward people despite their unqualified, they're not worthy, they don't deserve to, their unqualified judgments on his word and his character. Let's pray. Father God, we give you great praise for Christ. Although through one man sin came, through another, through the better man came life and peace. For Lord, he outweighs us all. His righteousness, his holiness is far greater than our depravity. That in his obedience to you, in his faithfulness, in keeping your law, in his turning from the lies of the serpent and responding with the certain hope, the certain truth of your character, he stood firm through all temptation. He did not gratify the desires of the flesh, but was obedient even to the point of death, death on a cross, where he made way for us to live in obedience to you. Lord, today we thank you that we have the Holy Spirit. Our eyes are open. Our mind is able to comprehend the weight of our sin. It's able to see the attacks of the devil. He no longer has power like he did. He has been crushed. He is bound to some degree. And Lord, today you have victory over him. We can say to him, flee from us and he will flee. We can avoid the deceptions, the delusions. We can have certain hope and not live in the gray, the uncertainty that this world is surrounded by. Lord, I pray that we would go forth and preach boldly. That we may question other people and ask them to think and consider where goodness comes from. That you, Lord, are a good God and your word should be trusted, obeyed and listened to. And the only means of that is through your Holy Spirit. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.